Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Ethan Small to talk about one of our favorite films, Catch Me If You Can. Ethan, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Chad. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been a long while. You mentioned, uh, I guess, a month or so. Oh, it was probably two months now at this point that you were interested in talking about this movie. And I said, okay, let's do it, but uh, let, let's wait just a little bit first. And so we're finally <laughs> circling back to that, and I'm glad to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, how about you reintroduce yourself since it has been a little bit since you were on uh, and tell people out there who you are, what you do, all that kind of good stuff. Sure. Uh, my name's Ethan. I am 27 years old and I live in Denver, Colorado. I do marketing for a living and uh, yeah, I love movies, love uh, entertainment and uh, that's about it. Okay, well, let's just cut to it then. <laughs> uh, we're talking about Catch Me If You Can this week, uh, which was released Christmas Day of 2002. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, who, just to go over a few of his films, if you haven't heard of them, uh, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the other Indiana Jones films, E.T. The Extraterrestrial, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Saving Private Ryan, Lincoln, War Horse, The BFG, recently The Post, and upcoming Ready Player One. It was written by Jeff Nathanson and was based on the book Catch Me If You Can by Frank Abagnale Jr. and Stan Redding. The music was composed by legendary John Williams, uh, too extensive to go over too many details, but basically just see the Spielberg filmography, plus also Star Wars, the first three Harry Potters, and so on. And the movie does star Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, Christopher Walken, Natalie Bay, Amy Adams, Martin Sheen, James Brolin, and Nancy Lanahan. So as we always do, what was your first experience with this movie, Ethan? Do you remember? So the first time I saw this movie was with my family. Um, we used to have back when, I don't know how old I would have been at the time. I, when did this come out? 2002? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, back in grade school, my family had a pretty regular ritual of watching movies together on the weekends. And this was just one of the movies that had come out on uh, on DVD or whatever it was at the time, and uh, we rented it and uh, watched it in the in a the basement theater setup, and uh, that was sort of the scene for it. But I remember from the very first time I saw it, I was pretty blown away. Just I think it was the first uh, Leonardo DiCaprio performance I'd seen, and uh, the story and the acting. And really, everything about it just really captivated me, and I just loved it. Okay, well, this was uh, my first experience watching the movie, believe it or not. Um, well, to be, to be fair, I had seen some of it before. I, I think there was once where I actually watched a pretty long bit of it on TV, but I really only remembered the gist of the story, no, no real details. In fact, I think I even forgot that Tom Hanks was a part of it until preparing to watch uh so uh not familiar with the movie at all before tonight but uh i was familiar with the musical theme uh because i am a john williams fan and had long owned this sort of box set that featured williams and his spielberg scores and stuff like that so i, I was familiar with the music at least in some capacity and you know i i, I like Leonardo DiCaprio, and I especially like Tom Hanks, and it is Steven Spielberg, so I had pretty high hopes and expectations that I would enjoy it, and <laughs> it didn't disappoint. It is an enjoyable film, and uh, I mean, on paper even, I mean, it, it's just a movie that's sort of right up my alley, so I was excited to watch, and uh, now I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. story-wise, what, what stands out to you here? What, what, what are some of your favorite stuff? So I really like the, the way that, um, I guess there's two main things about the story that really grab me. And the first would probably be how uh, it actually ebbs and flows between um, the, going to the future and then back into 
sort of the the narrative progression of things, but um I I I actually found that the way that they jumped ahead uh to showing uh Frank and Carl interacting together to be uh really interesting because you sort of already know that Frank's gonna get caught uh because of what he's doing. And so the fact that they sort of are just upfront about that and and focus instead on not the fact that he gets caught, but how he gets caught. Um, I really love that. And then the other the other piece of the story is just the fact that he managed to to do what he did. And that the fact this is based on a true story. Um the the I love how Frank is so incredibly intelligent and uh, picks up on things and notices things and is able to adapt and morph into these different uh, roles and jobs uh, just on a whim. And uh, it's just the, the story, it's, it moves really nicely. It's, it's, it's captivating the entire duration of the movie. And um, that would be the summary of my, my thoughts on the story. I like that we start at the end as well. It's it's almost like we get automatically a sense that this has been a long journey and that it has been yeah. taxing on both of them. And we even get a sense uh, as the, the, I'd call them flashbacks, but it's sort of the, the present day of the story uh, right. where we see them traveling together on the flight. But we get a sense that these two have some sort of relationship. So mm-hmm. uh, even how fitting that this movie released on Christmas and their interactions were always on Christmas or Christmas Eve or Christmas yeah. time in general. So it's it sort of a, l- a little bit meta there, but it, it was just interesting to me that from the start, we, we established that these two have known each other for a little while and have sort of had this back and forth with each other. And then we go back to sort of the origins of that. It's almost like a back, it's not a backwards friendship, but it's like a, it's like a, a buddy comedy, not except. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know what I'm saying? It's like a buddy comedy where we get the, the friendship and then we get the origins of the friendship. Right. Uh, right. It, it's just sort of a twist on that genre, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not a, a buddy friendship movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's funny how they, they do end up. Um, there's the, at the, to jump to the very, very end, uh, there's the note about how they, maintain a long-term friendship but um yeah i also love and i mention this every time a movie has one so i'm trying to be consistent i love that we have an opening title sequence uh where we have this sort of unique style of animation yeah and it's paired with the the music by john williams and it's like this evoke evocative theme of uh mystery and intrigue and it's just uh a great way it's always a great way to open the film yeah uh, yeah i love the animation and i love how they actually use it to foreshadow um specifically like the roles that he takes on like you see um the little i guess stick figure um with as a flight attendant and then as a doctor and um yeah that it's a awesome uh opening love it and I think it would hold even more meaning if I went and rewatched it from the beginning now that I've seen the rest yeah. of the movie. Yeah, so I that I, I sort of get the, it's almost like, a, are, are they walking me through the whole movie before I watch the movie kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they definitely um, foreshadowed uh, a handful of, of things in, in that little sequence. But yeah, I mean, I, I just love opening title sequences because it, it gives the the music and in this case the animation the chance to be the star before the film officially actually kicks off and I, I I like that films can sometimes take a moment to breathe and let something else be the focus aside from our top build cast yeah for sure uh, any other story wise or filmmaking kind of things to talk about before we just dive into the characters um. Well, I guess when you when you said filmmaking just there, um, uh, one thing that caught my attention during this uh, 
watch through was a couple of really awesome and interesting and no surprise given that it's Steven Spielberg, but uh, camera shots and um, there's a couple scenes that stand out in my mind. I'll just mention uh, real briefly, one of them being um, the interaction with, um, uh, what's his, um, so there's, uh, he's proposing to Brenda's dad, Frank Mm -hmm. is proposing to Brenda's dad, and there's a shot of the camera's sort of positioned below him and angled slightly, and the, and the lighting is, um, it's like, uh, the father figure is, he's bright, and then the area around him has like this sort of this vignette around him. And it just really caught my attention. I was like, wow, that's, that's a very interesting angle. And then the other one that stood out to me was um, when uh, one of the scenes where Frank is calling uh, Carl on Christmas Eve and they're talking on the phone and the camera zooms in on Carl's mouth and face and in certain positions and um, when he's laughing in response to something that he says. And uh, there's, those are two that, that stood out to me, but there were several um, just great uh, filmmaking uh, elements like that where they, he plays with the angle and he plays with interesting and unique shots. And I had forgotten that about this movie that there, there is some like experimentation there and some some really interesting um, dynamics there. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and move on to characters now. Uh, starting off with Frank Jr. and you know he he sort of reminds me vaguely of Judy uh, Kirsten Dunst's character in Jumanji, only because we recently talked about that movie. Because Judy. I'm pretty sure that's her name, uh, uh, is a compulsive liar in the film. Mm. And we talked about how, or at least I talked about how I thought she was a, a compulsive liar because she was still dealing with the the tragedy of her parents' death and lying allowed her to control her tragedy and control people's perception of her rather than just being the tragic girl who lost her parents. So in the same way, I think that Frank and his compulsion to come up with these alternate personas and forge checks and do everything illegal under the sky. (laughs) Well, that's not fair to him. Not everything illegal. He doesn't kill anybody. (laughs) But uh, he takes control of his life by creating fictions, starting with the the substitute teaching, really. Um, It's like he's trying to make up for his father's failures, but he doesn't see his father's failures as his failures, but rather almost his father being robbed by the government. And, you know, the the IRS is the bad guy and Frank's father actually did nothing wrong. And so he's creating these fictions to sort of justify all the stealing he's doing. And then plus, in addition to the IRS troubles, you've got his parents' marriage problems. And there was a scene early on where his dad and mom were going over the, the often told story of how they met and fell in love and came to where they are today and they're dancing together and they're very happy. But then the IRS trouble, they move out of their bigger house into a smaller apartment and she leaves him. So he still thinks, he he, he thinks that his mother left because of their money woes. And maybe she did, but he almost has this perception where if he can restore his father to his former glory before this whole IRS business, then they'll get back together. And so I think that's another sort of motivating factor. And unfortunately for him, by the end of the film, his father is dead, his mother is remarried, and has started a new life and a new family, has a, a daughter, so he has a, a, a half-sister. And so it, it, things just don't turn out the way that Frank would like, despite his motivations, I think, being noble in a way. Yeah, I think I think his his dad really is is probably his biggest motivation. You just have several scenes where he's like, "Dad, I bought you this car," and and 
look look what all these think great things that I'm I'm doing. I'm a doctor. I'm a I'm a lawyer, and and he really wants to um, redeem his dad more than anything, and that's really his his biggest fault. And um, it's also interesting too how his dad is also the one that well he he sort of leverages things that his dad he's seen his dad do to enable him to take on the roles that he does and to appeal to people's emotions things like pulling out the necklace and asking the woman if she had dropped it um and all of these things that he learned from his dad and um yeah, they have a very interesting relationship, and you can just see how deeply, deeply uh, Frank loves his dad and cares about his dad. Um, both when when they're interacting together, and also when he finds out that he's died. Right. It's it's almost like his drive to escape disappears with the knowledge that his father is no longer with him. Um, right. But, but that, that influence is definitely there. there. There is the necklace that you mentioned. There is the story of the mouse and the cream, which he relies on when yeah. <laughs> he's asked to pray over dinner and he doesn't really know what to do. And so <laughs> he tells scene. the story of the mouse and the cream instead. And uh, even the, the analogy with the Yankees, they're distracted by the pinstripes. That's something he stole from his father. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in a lot of ways, I think his father is sort of the original con man in this relationship. Yeah. Um, we see him bribing the shop owner for with with jewelry that the necklace for favors or making up fictions for the banks uh, for the bank in order to receive a loan. And uh, so, so we see where Junior gets it from. But I also think that Frank Senior almost is a little bit more of an honest con man. He never seems to. Uh, push the boundaries as far as Frank did. And sure, then yeah. when, when the, the water started getting hotter, he cooled off and started living within his means rather than pulling a Frank Jr. and just <laughs> uh, stealing millions of dollars in fraud, frauded checks. Uh, so uh, I, I, I don't know. The, the, the father is protective of his son, uh, as you would expect a father to be, but he's also sort of enabling rather than sort of trying to convince his son to stop and pause and do the right thing. He almost encourages him, uh, saying, you know, you you can't stop. You can't stop. Although I don't know if that's advice. Like if you stop, you're going to go to jail or, yeah, uh, it's almost like he's in, indifferent about it he's like where are you going next frank and he's just um he's not um trying to persuade him or um encourage him either i think he's just he's almost indifferent about it yeah it's like he he's enjoying reaping some of the benefits of Mm -hmm. his son's lies uh but i also think that he is aware of the consequences if Frank Jr. were to get caught. And so his encouragement or, or lack of desire to tell him to stop is in the interest of keeping his son out of prison. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah there's, they- there's that. And, you know, regarding his parents, his, his mother even teaches uh, him to, to bribe and to lie uh, there's that scene where he comes home and Jack's there and it's pretty obvious to Frank that his mother and Jack are sleeping together. And she says, here's uh, $5 or or maybe $10. Go buy a record. There's nothing to tell anyways, right? And then the very next scene, they're getting divorced. So uh, she even is an influence to the negative leading him to this life of crime. Yeah, it's very clear how his parents teach teach him. Um, obviously, he was Frank Jr. is the one that takes it to the level that he does, but they certainly set the stage in a lot of ways um, through through 
their their actions. What do you have to say about Carl? Well, Carl is hilarious, and <laughs> um, I I was a little distracted by the the uh, Tom Hanks um, hit the accent at first, but then I got used to it. But um, yeah, in terms of his character, he's hilarious. Um, I love how he has this um, attitude of business he means business but he's also got a really big heart um and you see that in in the way that he he sort of develops this genuine care for frank and his well-being and uh you see that in the in the relationship that they that they have um but especially at the start um the scene where they're in the car, and uh, uh, Carl and his uh, n- newly assigned uh, partners on the case, um, <laughs> the knock-knock joke, um, knock-knock, who's there, go F yourself. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, he, and he, there's several other um, ways that he demonstrates that character of being... Um, I don't know what the word is, but uh, he's he he can be very um, sort of strict and harsh and 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 meaning business, but then um, it's it's in a way that is funny and it's in a way that is <laughs> very entertaining as a viewer. Yeah, he definitely takes his job seriously. There's there's no time for him for joking around on the job. Um, and though he gets made a fool of, and that's where a lot of the comedy of the film does come out, uh, with Frank outwitting or, uh, just being faster than Carl, uh, he gets made a fool of, but he's definitely not a fool. He, he's, he shows that he's pretty smart, pretty resourceful. He picks up on subtle things like Barry Allen being a comic character or, or, uh, when Frank mentions the Yankees and Carl's able to surmise that he's from New York City and is able to pretty quickly uh, draw the line between Frank Abagnale mm-hmm. and the the guy he met at the hotel in the first place. Uh, so yeah. he he is a smart guy and he is able to more or less keep up with Frank. Uh, Frank's just one or two steps ahead most of the time. Yeah, I like that his I think Carl's character really does develop over the course of, of the movie because at the start he does kind of come off as a little bit aloof and, um, and I mean the way that, uh, Frank outsmarts him in their first confrontation when he pretend Frank pretends that he's with the secret service secret service is, is in fact very smart. But you also have this sense of really like you you let you didn't like take further measures to to make sure that he was in fact with the secret service and and then later on as as he develops, um you see Carl learn the behavior of frank and he and he very quickly starts to identify i pick up on the cues and identify what Frank is more more likely to do next, and hence why he is ultimately able to catch him. And uh, it's a pretty cool uh, to see that, that progression. And, um, but it's, it's clear throughout the entire film that, that yeah, Carl's is a, a smart guy and who knows, who knows what he's doing. It just goes to show that Frank is also very smart and observant. And when he's first starting out this whole, ruse and lifestyle as a pilot he goes and he asks questions and he watches videos to to learn how to fit himself in he's resourceful in that way he he comes across this machine at an auction that is able to help him to more realistically forge checks and he he is very on top of his game and quick on his feet when when carl and him first meet each other uh it doesn't take him but the snap of a finger to come up with this CIA or Secret Service persona and 
with his charm, because he's a very charming guy, convince Carl that he is who he says he is. And no, you don't need to really check my ID because I'm obviously telling the truth to you. Uh, as he says, tell, uh, where is it? Um, tell them what you want him to know, basically. Uh, if, if you don't, people only know what you tell them. Right. Uh, so he, he's very quick thinking and it's with that quick wit and, uh, almost improvisational ability He's able to stay those two steps ahead of Carl that I mentioned, but he's also very lonely and that sort of comes with the lifestyle and you almost think he's going to give it up when he meets Brenda and he treats her extremely well. She appears to be someone who has had a little bit of a rough life, who gets yelled at at work, who has been disowned by her parents and is wearing braces. And all these kind of things that are sort of working against her, but Frank goes in and helps her to feel special and he falls for her. I I think that I don't, I don't doubt the relationship that they have. I think it was a genuine affection that they had for each other, especially him towards her. And it's only sort of out of self-preservation that he leaves her behind, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I, I did have some doubts about whether or not Frank uh, was like truly in love. I could, you know, it's very clear that he cared about Brenda a lot. And um, I think that in the scene where he pulls up to the airport in Miami and realizes that he's being watched, I think that he, he really didn't have a choice there um and i mean but to drive away um but at the same time i i he is such a a a con man that i i did have some doubts about um whether or not he was um really really in love with her and uh i don't know what do you think well i think that if it wasn't if it wasn't genuine affection, then it was hold on i think I think it was genuine affection because like the whole move as as uh Carl points out, she believes him to be Connors, and so him growing attached to somebody and moving with her and uh being forced to use the same name in different locations was endangering to himself. So I think he was smart enough that mm-hmm. it was, if it wasn't genuine affection, then he wouldn't have stuck around. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So uh, I, I think it is genuine affection, but it, it's just because of self-preservation and not wanting to go to prison forever that he does have to leave her. Uh, and his plan wasn't to leave her. His plan was to say, listen, do you trust me? Meet me here at this time. Uh, at this place, and then we will escape together. And to show that I trust you, here is also my real name. Um, right. So it, it's just the fact that she shows up at the airport with the FBI that he's forced to abandon her. So it's sad, but uh, it, I, I do think that was a genuine desire for companionship. It, it, and we see that he's lonely as well. He calls Carl the first time, and Carl almost teases him a little bit and says, you're calling me because you have no one else to call. Yeah, so, yeah for sure. The, they, they point out that aspect of this life that he's living is incredibly lonely. Um, not only is he moving around constantly, changing roles, living, living under different names, but he is constantly running um, and can't, and so he can't sustain relationships with people. And by the end of the film, uh, when he is caught in France, in the, the town where his mother and father met, of all places, uh, there's almost <laughs> this sort of wild desperation to him uh, where he is trying to 
convince himself that Carl is lying and that it's just the two of them and that he could just leave if he wanted to. But eventually he cedes and says, and, and believes Carl and says, okay, swear on your daughter. Okay. Well, Carl was lying, but I, I think that there's almost relief in the fact that he has finally been caught and he doesn't have to keep up with himself anymore. Uh, there was even earlier scenes on previous Christmases where he and Carl were communicating with each other. And he says, well, here's where I am. You can come right now and find me here. And Carl doesn't believe him. But then there's the the, the camera focus on the door as as Frank walks out. And he was telling the truth. It was almost like he was asking to be caught so that he could stop this lifestyle before it spirals out of control. And uh, because Carl doesn't believe him, it does spiral out of control. Yeah, there there comes a point where he where Frank realizes that he has put something into motion that is unstoppable and it's out of control. And he gets to a point where he's running from himself and he doesn't know who he is. And he, yeah, with that scene in the village in France, he really is. You can see how just how lost he has become and how um, sort of deranged uh, he's become. Yeah, there is definitely a, a level of derangement. It, it's like he's got crazy eyes yeah. there in France in that scene where he, he's finally caught. Uh, but there's something revealed about his character even further when he makes another escape attempt. Uh, mm then and then another one as he uh, is in the hospital very, or in the prison very sick and then another one <laughs> through the plane and uh, in the undercarriage and escaping through the wheel on the the tarmac it, it, it's crazy the lengths and ability he has to escape and again the resourcefulness but uh, that that those final escapes i think were not necessarily to actually escape. It was just, I don't know if it was maybe to prove to himself that he could still do it or to prove to Carl that he could still do it or, or what, but that, that final escape and he goes to his mother's house and then he realized that she's moved on and he really is alone. And so why keep trying to escape if there's nobody to continue fighting for? Yeah. I think the, the, the ultimate resolution is when he does show up at work at the FBI um, to help with the check investigations. Um, there's that moment where he actually you see him about to leave again, wearing a flight uni- uniform, and um, the fact that he shows back up again um, on his uh, truly on his own volition. Um, without any without being caught without any other sort of external force um other than you know the responsibility and and the 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 consequences but that's the one time that we see him um not try to escape when he um when they're it's not actually an opportunity to escape but when there is in his own mind Right. Are there any other characters you wanted to talk about? Um, no, that's it. Okay, I just did want to mention that uh, Brenda is played by Amy Adams, and this was actually yeah. like three years before her big breakout in Enchanted. Uh, it's crazy that you know this was her first major film role, but still her, her career didn't kick off until a few years later. Uh, yeah, I forgot she was in this. Uh, yeah. Rewatching it, and uh, I, I recognized immediately i was like oh my god that's amy yeah right i always think of enchanted as being her first film role even though it wasn't uh it was just the one that made her famous and even that same year 2005 she was in season one and parts of season two of the office and right uh (laughs) she's going on uh, to do some really great work right i I just forget that uh she was uh, uh involved in the industry uh, a few years before then even if she wasn't a major star yet right yeah and i guess on that same note there's also several other actors um the cast here is is really actually fantastic it's not just leo 
and and Tom. It's actually you've got Christopher Christopher Walken, you've got Amy Adams, you've got um I'm trying to remember the guy. Okay, Martin Sheen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Martin, Martin Sheen, Sheen who plays Brenda's father. Um so yeah, it's really an all all-star cast. Yeah, you've even got uh, Elizabeth Banks and uh, Ellen Pompeo in smaller roles. And so. Jennifer Garner makes a... a oh, yeah, that's true. Well. Her too. She's not even listed on the cast list on Wikipedia. So, I mean, it's a super <laughs> small role. She's only in that one scene. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I recognize her in the scene and uh, it is cool. I mean, it's a Spielberg film. You would expect him to get the, the big people, but it's funny sure. how, how many younger people he had mm. sort of on the cusp of the start of their careers in this movie. Right. Yeah. Now, moving on to the music uh, by the maestro, John Williams, what I thought was really interesting about this music, as I said, I was familiar with it ahead of time, but it's very jazz influenced, which I think Mm. is fun because I think I'm sort of scanning through Wikipedia right now as I say this. I'm pretty sure that John Williams's roots as a musician are as a jazz pianist. So Mm. he, he is definitely returning to sort of home base as it were uh, huh. we, we know him for his huge orchestral works and this is not a huge orchestral work this is very small almost chamber-esque uh and it is very jazzy and there are, are sort of two main themes uh sprinkled throughout the score there's one for carl and the investigation and the sort of drawing in on frank and that's the the, the tune that we hear in the opening credits during that animation and then the other one is for Frank as he develops new skills or creates a new persona. And it's very lighthearted and whimsical. And uh, it, it's neat having this contrast between the two themes for the two characters. Yeah, um, that's really cool that uh, you brought that up about it being jazz. I think it's fitting that jazz one of the foundational elements of it is improvisation and mm-hmm. Frank is an improviser. That is what he does. He, he improvises these roles on the spot and uh, does it quite well. And um, yeah, that's really cool. Um, I was I just do. making that same comparison in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Uh, I love that fluttery flute sound and the, and the conspicuousness of it. And it really, makes this a sort of a detective movie in a way because um you've you've got the chase happening but you've also got this the investigation side of it and i find that uh that music that it has that conspicuousness about it and intrigue um is very very fitting so and I, I did just find uh, confirmation in Wikipedia that during the 50s, when he was in New York City, John Williams did work as a jazz pianist in oh. the city's many jazz clubs. So I, I was pretty sure I had that nugget of information <laughs> stored away somewhere and that it would resurface. And uh, it was thankfully correct. So uh, I, I like the improvisational nature. As you said, it, it, it's very fitting. The energy is right. And uh, it, it, it's... It's a great score. There's really not much else to be said. It's John Williams. So what would you expect? But <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's a good listen, and including separate of the film. As I said, I was familiar with it outside of the film. And uh, I, I'd like to sit now that I've, I, I knew the main theme and I've seen the movie with everything. And so now I just need to sit down with the whole score separate from the film and uh, see how that plays out. And I'm sure it's wonderful. Yeah. It just makes the movie all that more memorable. Just like... Other scores serve that function for for film. Now, as far as relevance and themes and takeaways go, uh, what's one that you have? Um, one of the things I put down was that criminals not necessarily being evil or bad people. Um, Frank is a criminal of a very bad, bad kind. But at the same time, throughout the movie, it's pretty clear that he is a good person at heart. He is very loving. You see this in the way he treats his father and his parents and, and Brenda. 
um, you know, despite his many, many, many faults, you can see pretty clearly, I think, that at his core, he's a good human being. And I think that also the fact that he does end up working for the FBI for good and serving the FBI and, and ultimately uh, preventing all of the uh, uh, bad that could have come from all those fraudulent checks and bank fraud that would have uh, continued had he not assisted with it, even though you know he didn't necessarily choose that job. He does ultimately take that job and do that job. And um, so I, I, I think that's one of the takeaways for me. You know, I, I, I was thinking the same thing. There's this idea of how we all have talents that can sort of be used for good or for evil. And Frank is eventually able to use right. his skills and experience in just, service of the government rather than... Just in, took him a while to get there. And, yeah, and sort of rather to. than in rebellion to it. <laughs> right. Um, uh, now, before he reaches that point, he does use it for evil, you could say. He, he ruins many lives, including presumably Brenda and her parents, uh, right. leading them on this, this fantasy where he was about to get married. And then, surprise, surprise, he's not who he says he is. And uh, I, I was left wondering about the, the, the eight teenagers he took over to Europe to, to tour as Pan Am uh, stewardesses like what happened to them what where, where'd yeah. they go because uh, yeah. he certainly wasn't telling the truth about that they were happy to leave but then we don't hear from them again and you could also even argue that he uh ruined the final years of his father's life i mean we, we don't see any evidence of that necessarily but they clearly had a strong relationship and a, a powerful bond and you saw seniors influence in junior and you sort of expect that the reason he's doing a lot of this is to restore his father to uh, a standard of life that he's not at anymore. And now he's been gone living these lives for so long to the point that he didn't even know his father had passed away. So I, I think that it could be said that his father may have died happier had his son been there at his side. And certainly mm -hmm. Frank wouldn't have this regret for not having been present because of his lies. And, you know, the, the irony of this whole situation is that now he earns more money using his skills to help the government and the Czech companies than he yeah. did forging the checks himself. So uh, if that's not a testament to we have talents that we should use for good rather than for evil, then I don't know what is. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there's also just the idea of dishonesty. There's, uh, you know, little white lies are one thing, but Frank built his entire existence around lies to the point that he loses everything. He can't live a normal life when his normal life is built on lies. You know, he loves Brenda, as I was saying, but he has to leave her to escape Carl. He misses the final years of his father's life. And so there are these important milestones that he can't live. He can't live the normal life because, like I said, his normal life is built around lies. He doesn't have a normal life because he's not even living as himself, technically. Yeah, he, Frank becomes a prisoner to himself as a result of lying and having to const, which, which, lying causes him to have to constantly run and he and he it, it the movie shows just how lying equals a lonely existence um he by being deceptive by not telling the truth by being dishonest he doesn't have any real friends and and or connections with people that um have real meaning behind them everything is is existing under this veil of of deception and um yeah that's that's pretty clear <laughs> and uh lastly for me at least as far as takeaways go perseverance 
you have this tale from the beginning of the two mice, one who drowns in the cream because he gives up and the other one who struggles and struggles, eventually churning the cream into butter and crawling out. And his father introduces that at the beginning as sort of a way of uh, explaining his clawing his way to the top. And uh, then Frank Jr. uses it as a prayer at one point. But uh, (laughs) if you look, Carl perseveres throughout the whole film over a period of several years to catch this one guy. Uh, Yeah, he was a pretty major criminal as far as how much he was getting away with and all that kind of stuff. But uh, Carl, despite humiliation, despite being two steps behind at several points over this time, he perseveres, he continues on, and is eventually able to catch up and win at the end. So uh, I think the movie is also a testament to perseverance and determination. Absolutely, yeah. And just the way that you see Frank continuing to, in the later moments of the movie, and continuing to... um, try to escape he's it's not good but he is he is persevering in his quest to be free and uh, i think he he does actually eventually get there um in his role as the uh as the uh, fbi employee any other takeaways or final thoughts on the film that's all i've got um this is a great film and if you haven't if anyone listening hasn't seen this definitely worth a watch yeah hopefully you wouldn't have uh listened through the whole episode without having seen the film but uh maybe if if you haven't then i would definitely recommend it i mean as i said at the start before we dove into discussing it it's spielberg it's tom hanks it's leonardo dicaprio what more could you want? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's a great film. And it, the fact that it is based on a true story, it kind of makes me want to go and read this guy's book and yeah. uh, learn more about the true stuff because, you know, films are always dramatized to a certain extent. So what was real, what wasn't, what was even harder to believe in real life than it is in the film, I, I think it would be a fantastic, interesting subject to dive into and explore a little bit further. Yeah, I'd love to do that more myself and definitely will be watching this movie again so maybe knowing some of that would uh change the experience or enhance it in some way well with that that is the end of the official 76th episode of cinescope thanks again for joining me tonight ethan thanks for having me contact for the show facebook.com slash cinescope podcast and at cinescope pod on twitter please consider going over to itunes giving us a rating and review maybe even subscribing. That would help us with visibility. Um, Quick side note, my other podcast, which I'll mention here in a minute, American Workplace, recently charted on iTunes in the TV and movies category, and it is a year younger than this show. (laughs) And so I would love if Cinescope got some of the same attention. Now I know it's a very different kind of show, but uh, anything you can do, if you like this show, if you haven't considered going over to iTunes and rating reviewing yet, that would be a huge help. And maybe we can eventually get Cinescope to the same sort of level of notoriety as that show. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Do it. Subscribe. Leave a review. If you have any feedback or ideas, you can also email me at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that regarding co-hosting. If you have a movie you love that you would like to talk about, just like Ethan did tonight with this one. Now, Ethan, where can people find you and your work if you have any online? Uh, The best place to reach me, uh, Twitter, uh, at Ethan underscore small. And uh, yeah, that's the best place. Okay, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And my other show that I just mentioned, An American Workplace. We talk about NBC's The Office every week. We just started season four. It is going extremely well. I'm blown away by the reception for that show and the listenership. So... I'd love it if you checked it out. If you like The Office or if you would 
we would like to watch The Office. We don't spoil anything as we go. So even though I've watched the show many, many, many times, you can start at the beginning and I won't be spoiling things that come up ahead. So you can find that where podcasts can be found and at workplacepodcast.com. And all show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you once again, Ethan. It's always great having you on to talk about a movie. Yeah, thanks again. I look forward to the next one. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 76. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 77. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 